When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's what everybody, we are back, and this is episode 199, How to Think Like a Programmer. We hear this phrased a lot, like how to problem solve like a programmer, don't just learn syntax is a common phrase associated with this, don't just memorize is another thing that we've heard in school a couple of times, and so we're going to kind of crack the code on that, especially for people that are self-learning and being like, what, do, like, what, do, what does all that mean? Like, of course I need to know the syntax, the syntax is the hard part. Is it really the hard part? So we're going to get into that. This episode, if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon. Leave a review rating on your podcast app. Join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. And this is actually a me-heavy episode. I prepared this. And we have a bit of an interesting kind of dynamic, hopefully. Hopefully interesting. It's new for this episode specifically. So I'm going to be going through the normal sort of spiel and Mike and I will be discussing it and all this information about what, what's, what this episode is about. But then at the end, we have two examples that we want to use because I think that example learning in this particular case, and I just like example learning in general, is is the best, okay? The best way to kind of portray this. And so the first example is in our show notes. It's it's here. There's been, you know, we've, we've written our responses type of thing. We'll be discussing our responses live, of course, but the, it, it's, it's here. We've prepped for it. The second one here is just the title. We just have what the example is. And we're going to try to do this live. So you're probably going to hear us mess up and hesitate and stuff like this. But the reason why we did this is because we want to show how people think like a programmer and also how different programmers think differently. And without prep, I think it's going to be a much more organic experience. And I hope it helps you in your learning journey. And you think, okay, you know, I, you know, I don't think like Matt, I think like Mike, or I don't think like Mike, I think like Matt, or I don't think like either of these guys, these guys are fools and I'm deleting this show and I'm getting rid of, no, please don't do that. Uh, but I hope no one thinks like me right now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, Mike is uh, Mike is going through some uh, some professional some some professional changes. He's worked on his schedule for months, and now his schedule is about to be turned upside down. So, uh, going real well. Ooh, let's do it. Uh, going real well. But anyway, without further ado, let's let's jump into this episode. So, you know, when you decide that you want to learn to code, you embark on that coding journey. The number one thing that your mind is probably trying to calculate and think of is at least it was for me, is the syntax. You know, I've chosen a language, you know, I've chosen whatever it is. I've chosen JavaScript, whatever. And I've decided, okay, I need to learn this and I really need to learn the syntax. I need to know how to do ifs and variables and loops and are there like specific plugins I should be using for this language or certain tools that are super popular that make it easier or, you know, frameworks or this and that and the other thing, like like a hundred and... 50,000 things are running through your mind. And at least for me, a lot of it was syntax because syntax, especially if you're new to programming, looks very complicated. How am I supposed to remember to use semicolons? Do I need to use semicolons anymore? Is that a bracket or a squiggly bracket? You know, what is all this? And it it becomes just a lot, right? And if you do jump in to just learning the syntax, which a lot of us have done and I've done it as well, 
a lot of us have done this and your plate's full, right? Like you're, you're trying to memorize stuff. You don't know. Oh, I forgot to leave a line here. I forgot to leave a space. This is supposed to be in brackets. This is supposed to be in quotes. This is supposed to be in single quotes. This is supposed to be in double quotes. Like there's all these little nuances to, to, to syntax that we get really hung up on. Right. But in the background, you don't realize this, but there's actually two, at least I think there's two problems brewing silently in the background. And the first problem is that syntax is only applicable to the language that you're currently working on. So if you ever need to use a different language, and if you're becoming a full stack dev or you're constantly learning new things, or if you've decided that you want to, uh, let's say, like work in web dev in general, you know, things change to syntax changes over time a little bit. Like assuming you're not just going to learn C++ and then just like do that or like I'm going to learn this version of this language and I'm just going to do that because I don't really know if C++ evolves over time. I've, I've been a long time since I've used it. But it, like as long as you're not just going to be like, I'm going to learn this and I'm going to do this for my whole career, which chances are you're not going to do that. You're going to like the syntax that you learned that you spent so long memorizing is going to become outdated. So what's the solution, the high level solution to this problem, the first problem here? And that is we need something common between the languages that lets us use syntax in a more general way. We have to learn more about concepts and less about specific code formatting for a specific language. So we'll touch on that in a minute because the second problem here is also related to this. The second problem is it is very difficult to memorize syntax without a purpose, at least in my opinion. It's easy enough to memorize you know, how to make if statements, for example, but how long will you remember the formatting? Where's that squiggly bracket? Is there a line here? Do I need a line break? Where's the semicolon? You know, it's very difficult to memorize all that stuff without a purpose. And also specifically without doing it frequently. You're going to make an if statement today, tomorrow, the next day, you know, practice, practice, practice type of thing. And then you, you got to think to yourself with that first problem we talked about how syntax becomes outdated just in terms of our career or the language gets updated or the, the industry moves on and you have to learn a new language. You know, should I be even be really memorizing this? Like, should I be memorizing syntax in this way where I'm just sitting there, you know, nose to the grindstone and just like memorizing where to put these brackets in these spaces and memorizing how to declare functions and memorizing how functions work in this particular language and memorizing if it's syn if it's synchronous or asynchronous or blah, 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 blah. The list goes on. So the solution to the second problem, again, a high level solution is we need a reason to be coding up a project. At least this is my opinion. Once again, we need a reason to be coding up this project. The more of a reason that you have to be practicing your syntax, the better you're going to memorize or the more you're going to memorize is in my opinion, that syntax. And it's not going to be like a memorization technique either. I'll give you an example. So there is like a syntax, obviously, to say CSS, right? You need a certain format, you need squiggly brackets, this and that, semicolons, and then properties are called certain things, and you know the, the list goes on, right? So when you're when you're making a layout in, in, in web in uh, web dev, your CSS is there, but sometimes you need a breakpoint. So I was using uh, media queries, which I would always one hundred percent forget. And what do I mean by breakpoint? It's like if your screen shrinks below, let's say you know, 700 pixels, then I want the CSS to do something different now. And so you have to put that, those differences in a media query. And I would always forget that, always forget that. And it wasn't a big deal. I was still working professionally, making UI layouts for clients and stuff like this. And what I would do is I would just simply look up 
the media query over and over and over again. Eventually, I just said, okay, that's it. Like, I'm going to kind of memorize this and just kind of sat down for like five, 10 minutes because it didn't take long because I'd used it so much and just sort of like practice writing it out rather than copy paste from some documentation. And the point I'm trying to make here is that you're going to forget stuff. Like even today, if I haven't written a media query in a while, I probably already forgot it and I can look that stuff up. The, the real value there is that I know that I need a breakpoint. I know that I'm going to do my breakpoint with a media query. Yes, I know there's other ways to do it now, but I know I'm going to make my breakpoint with a media query. And if I, and because I know that I can look that up and then copy paste or copy just an example of, of a media query, adjust it to my needs, probably change the max width in there. And then I can move on. So it's the concept of the breakpoint. It's the concept of responsivity in the design. And it, it's those concepts really that are important. But if you have a reason, like I said, with the practice, if you have a reason to constantly have breakpoints, like you're just ripping out sites, like you're really practicing, you're just making sites over and over and over again, make a site here, make a site there, make a site here, make a site there. That syntax is going to sit in your mind. So even when it, even though it like kept bouncing off of my brain for whatever reason, it only took me five or 10 minutes to really drill it into my head for a long time, right? So having, having a reason to practice that syntax, in my opinion, is really crucial. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, how do I just jump into programming concepts? Like, isn't that too abstract? It's not really useful. I can't go to a job interview and only have concepts under my belt. They're going to hire me to be a Ruby on Rails uh, developer, or they're going to hire me to be uh, a UI developer, or they're going to hire me to do a number of things. And they're going to want me to understand more than likely the language or the stack or whatever it is that they use. Because, you know, even something like a no code where if you know all about Elementor, you might be able to apply those skills to Webflow. But if you're going for a Webflow job interview, I mean, it's probably chances are more valuable to understand Webflow. So to so to you, you're thinking right now, you're thinking, man, like, I, you know, if I, I want to be a programmer, I want to be a coder, I want to be a web dev. But like, like concepts aren't going to get me there. Like, that's not what con that's not what people do every day. So if you go to traditional school, like a college or university is what I'm thinking, they will commonly administer these solutions to the problems I just laid out with teaching programmatic concepts, like let's say algorithms, for example, is a high level one, instead of specific languages. And Mike, you went to university as well. And even in your tests, you were writing pseudocode. You weren't writing specifically JavaScript, but you were learning concepts like conditional statements and this and that and the other thing. And then on your tests, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, on your tests, you weren't writing specifically, like, let's say you had a conditional statement because you needed to filter something out. You know, you weren't doing that in JavaScript. You're doing that in pseudocode where you're just saying like, if this equals this, then I do this. If this equals this, then I do this. If, you know, neither of those solutions is right, then, you know, else it's this. Like, you're just writing that concept out. You're not writing it in a specific languages con or specific languages syntax. Yeah, that's for most of my exams. That's how it was. If we had to write code, it was going to be pseudocode with a little bit of uh, abstraction. Um, but that's not to say that every class is going to be like that in traditional sense. Some teachers right. are kind of strict and being like, hey, write Java with Java and make sure you get all the, you know, all the classes correct and all the other inherited functions correct. Like some teachers are a little bit crazy like that. So uh, this is not a representative of everyone, but we had some decently progressive teachers, I guess. And we did write a lot of pseudocode because like Matt said, it's really, really key to 
only understand the concepts. And I, I preach this all the time where like, I look up how to do a switch case statement in JavaScript every time. I only use it every once in a while. It's a very simple syntax, but I don't need to memorize it. As soon as I use it, I just throw it out. There's multiple reasons for this too. Like code editors have gotten so good at predictive text with something like GitHub Copilot or just, just, uh, um, TypeScript. You can type in like if switch. And your code editor will, you know, emit like the rest of the rest of it for you. You'd never have to know exactly what the syntax is of that. The syntax is so unimportant in most cases. What I will say is, I don't know if you're, I don't think you're going to get into this yet, but um, what I will say is what you get when you start to specialize. So like Matt said, like a Ruby on Rails dev or a Vue.js dev or React dev, there's certain edge cases in each technology that are very specific to that technology that that's where you start to specialize a little bit. That's when you can go in and be like, hey, like you can use a, a, an if statement here, but really you need to use, you know, uh, a switch case because the if statement doesn't work as well as a switch case in this kind of language and this kind of scenario. Uh, or if, you know, if, if it's in React, then, you know, like you need to use a hook here instead of a class and stuff like that. Like there's these little things that you will pick up when you start to dive deep into a technology that you just can't pick up unless you actually do projects, unless you actually work with it. That's where the specialization comes. It doesn't like when you're at an interview, for instance, a lot of the times it doesn't matter about the syntax. You can talk your way out of syntax, but it does matter about the fundamental concepts of the technology that you're using. Right. So if you're using a technology that's uh, object oriented, for instance, that is uh, typed, strongly typed, like something like Java or C sharp, then you need to know that like, hey, when you're declaring this uh, string, it needs to be declared as a string. Otherwise, it will not work going down. Because you know that that is a strongly typed language. Whereas with JavaScript, you might not need that. If they ask for TypeScript, then you will. Like you need to know these little things. Not so much again the the statement, um, the syntax of an if statement or a syntax of a for loop. Like if someone asks you to to do that, and that's what they base their hiring decision on, even though you've answered everything else correctly, that's just. I don't know. It's it's not a very good look <laughs> for that company because everyone knows that it's like a three second lookup or even a code completion in the editor. And and to be honest, like when you said all that, it, it highlights an important thing, and we'll touch on this in one second as well. Is that like syntax is like it's it's almost like there's a hierarchy, at least in my opinion, where you understand generally like how to think like a programmer. Let's say right, you generally understand how to think like a programmer. You understand like a bunch of the concepts, and then right below that. So like not super far down this hierarchy, but like right below that is syntax. Cause obviously syntax is important for your daily stuff, but the concepts drive the drive the syntax. So what I mean by that is if you understand that, you know, you need a conditional statement, you know, you might not understand the ins and outs of whether you should be using a switch case right now or whether you should be using a bunch of if statements. But the point is, is you're able to implement the solution more than likely in either in either way. And then over time, if let's say you get a job as a JavaScript programmer, you might then be like, man, I've been doing this in ifs this whole time. It works, surely. But like Mike said, maybe a switch case is better for this particular instance and that's something that you'll specialize in. So that's like the second rung of the hierarchy where you'll slowly be like, oh, I should learn like, you know, I should like use a switch case here. And then slowly as you use that, you'll kind of be practicing the switch case syntax. And so syntax is important. Specializing, excuse me, is important. But 
the top is the is the is the are the concepts. It's like engineering it. It's like if you didn't realize that wheels were a thing, how would you make a car roll down the road, for example? Whereas we all realize what a wheel is. So if someone's like, you know, this wheelbarrow isn't working, we walk over to it and there's no wheel on it. We're gonna be like, hey, where's the wheel? You know what I mean? Like it's such a like a like a root concept now, like the idea of a wheel, it's round and it rolls. That type of thing. It's like the same thing with programming, where you understand the general concepts like Hey, I need a conditional statement here. Hey, uh, I need a a brief. Um, I need I need something stored really briefly so I understand that like a variable uh, stuff like that is like the core concepts that I can apply to virtually, if not every single language, meaning programming language. And then you can apply that, and that that goes for other tools that surround it surround um, technologies too, like. Uh, a lot of the time, if you use, let's say you're using like WordPress and then you have like a plugin that's like pretty advanced. A lot of the time they will make it because they realize that usually a web dev is going to be using that pl- that plugin. I find personally that if, if the UX is good, it's actually kind of like done in such a way that is almost programmatic where I'm going through like a fee- like a form field or even typing in custom code uh, in, in such a way that it's very programmatic where they thought like programmers brought that UX to an advanced plugin. And then even when you're using that advanced plugin, you're thinking programmatically, even if you're just filling in a a field, let's say. So, I mean, to complement the fact that syntax is important, the second example here I have is like, if you go to something like a bootcamp, right? Bootcamps are fast. They're there to get you in. And so what are they doing? They're teaching you in general. They're not all the same, but in general, they're teaching you how to code in a certain stack. So like a web dev stack, maybe they want to teach you React, maybe they want to teach you Svelte, maybe they want to teach you this, that, and the other thing. MongoDB, whatever their concept is, they're trying to teach you like, this is the back end, this is the front end, this is how we do the UI, this is how we do this, this is how we do that. And so they're trying to teach you something that's very specific, but they're trying to teach you a lot in a very short amount of time to get you employed in a company that is more than likely going to be using a near identical, if not identical stack to what they are teaching. Right. So that's kind of where they're at. And so that's why syntax, even though we're saying, like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. It is something to worry about because something like a boot camp is something to literally get you going into a career as like a web dev very, very quickly because they teach you a lot of syntax. I would assume that and it depends on the teacher and it depends on the boot camp. They probably teach you some concepts because there's going to be people there that are completely, you know, they've never coded anything in their lives. And so they have to consider that, but they're not going to sit there and spend a semester or spend an entire class or whatever, just specifically talking about an algorithm or just specifically, they're going to be like, this is a light box and you know, we need to click this. Okay. This is how you make a light box in react. This is the best way to do it. Or this is the best plugin for reactor this is the best method in react to make a light like a, a light box for an image that type of stuff and so that's where like like i'd say like a boot camp is sort of like in between those rungs where like they're teaching you a heck of a lot of syntax and then by association they're teaching you a heck of a lot of concepts but it's just really fast and like goes really quick but it's meant to get you a job really quick now this kind of leaves you with for the most part just self-teaching which is where you the listener might be at and, and you might be thinking like you know, this is pretty like, this is interesting, but where, like, where do I go? Like, how do I determine the path, the path forward? Right. You know, do you just memorize how to write code in your preferred language? You know, I know we've just talked down to that, but like the bootcamp kind of sounds like it's a lot of that. Do you just learn concepts? But then you're back to that problem again, where you're thinking, man, like, I'm not going to know any syntax. So like, what am I going to do? Go to, 
go to a, a job interview or, you know, go to a, a prospective client if you're trying to freelance and be like, well, I understand all the programming concepts, but you don't really know how to make a site for them. You know, and, and how about starting projects? You know, like, how do you start them with no syntax knowledge? And how do you get that practice in without, without like any of the syntax knowledge? And so I'm hoping that like this, this episode kind of alleviates some of this where um, what I'm trying to kind of point out is that, you know, the concepts are extremely important. They allow you to think and then to, to make those thoughts a reality, you use like the syntax, you, you use, you choose JavaScript and then your basic concepts that you're thinking of, you translate that into a JavaScript for loop or a JavaScript do loop or a JavaScript this or a JavaScript that or a JavaScript variable or, you know, a C++ variable or whatever the concept is. It's like the concept exists. And then to create, to make the concept a reality, you use syntax in a language of your choosing to then make the computer effectively do the thing you're conceptualizing if that makes a lot of sense. And so the answer to these three sort of questions about self-teaching of like what path forward, it's all three. You have to know some syntax. You have to know some concepes. And then to do, to do starting your projects, it's like, of course you need to know some syntax and you need to get some practice. And so don't just memorize syntax is what I'm trying to get at. You're not going to memorize it. Like you're not going to remember it. Don't just do concepts because you're not going to be employable. I would say do a mix where you go in and you're like, man, what's this if statement about? Like, you know, I've I've memorized an if statement. Like, think about for a moment what an if statement, like a conditional statement is just by itself. I know that I know for sure that when I was first starting that in high school, when they were telling us to do if statements, I was memorizing how to make an if statement just to get the assignments done. I didn't really think of it as almost like a decision-making engine where you're telling the computer, you know, if the button is red, then do this. If the button's blue, then do this. You know, it's a bit of a decision-making thing, right? It's like a condition, like what, what condition is the light in or what condition is the button in? What color, right? You're not really thinking of that. You're just kind of memorizing it. But do you see how a conditional statement by itself doesn't really have a purpose unless you understand the concept of, oh, if I have a situation that I need to determine like if the light or if the button is red or if the button is blue, then I have to do different things upon the color. Then you're like, I need a conditional statement here. I need an if statement here. So they go hand in hand. And so I know it's like, it sounds a bit muddy and you're probably like, well, do I do concepts now? Do I do syntax? Whatever. I think honestly, you know, I would say study what you're struggling with. And honestly, I like to have a project that drives it. So what I would, what I would commonly do is, or, or what I would come and do like way back, or even our teachers would do this is they would give us a, a, a problem. So they would say something like, um, a common one, and I'll take it out of programming actually to, to try to lessen, like make it less muddy is we had, and Michael remember this, we had to do a circuit where when the, when the circuits touching this side of this, like when, when this, when this trace, excuse me, this piece of wire is touching this side of the circuit this happens. And when it's, when, the, when it's touching this other side, this happens. And so we're learning to detect where the voltage is. Like, is the voltage on trace one? Is the voltage on trace two? And so that's a really high level concept. But then when we went to the lab, we used an application of it. And what it ended up being was we were pretending it was a CD tray opening. So it's like connect this thing to a servo, the servo, which is a little, just, just a little motor, excuse me, that turns. And it's like detect the position like, is the trace on 
one is the trace on the second one. One's open, one's closed. And then you start to think, okay, so in the real world, when I need something open or closed and I need to detect the state, I can use my my electronics knowledge now to do this. I'm not just under like taking a concept and being like, I now understand how to like detect where the voltage is in a circuit. But like, how does that work in real life? Right. You need that concept or that need or that problem of a CD tray needs to know whether it's open or closed to know whether to trigger the servo to open like the little motor to open it or to close it. So th- so we're marrying the two together. We're marrying we're marrying the concepts and we're marrying the syntax and we're like putting everything together and we're saying everything has to go together. But again, the concepts are what drives a lot of this. There are, it's kind of at the top of the hierarchy. Okay, so, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about this, but it's like, regardless of traditional boot camp or self-teaching, you know, the general idea of this whole thing to sort of kind of wrap this little piece up is that you need to be able to solve problems. The reason why anyone is programming, the reason why anyone is coding anything is to solve a problem. You may not think of it like a problem. Maybe like, well, I just wanted to make you know, an app that tracks, you know, my, my, uh, my budget. It's like, yeah, but your problem was you, you wanted to track your budget more efficiently than on paper. You have to think of it like that. And then you, in you, in this case, because we're talking about programming, you are going to solve problems in a way that a computer can execute. And by association, by association, excuse me, in, in such a way, you're going to solve these problems in a way that you can code a computer to do it because you're the one going to be driving the computer and telling the computer, the server, whatever it is to do it. And this right here, solving this problem in our experience or in my experience is this is how you think like a programmer. So what does that mean? What does it mean to think like a programmer? Now we could go on and on and on. And I'm sure there's a bunch of almost like, like philosophical, you know, bits about this or what have you. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. Like I wanted to just sort of talk about this at like sort of a conversational level, if you will. And so I've, I've written, I've written down four points to sort of hit here. What does it mean to think like a programmer? First one here, programmers break projects into smaller parts. Commonly, these smaller parts have even smaller parts underneath them. Now, that's going to sound a lot like a productivity thing where someone says, hey, you know, the project might be uh, open the local fair. It's like, whoa, do we get rides? Do we get, you know, in, in your mind starts racing? Do we get events? How do we do the tickets? So then someone who's good in productivity will go, OK, well, we need a ticket area like like a t- like let's break these into multiple tasks, tickets, events, uh, rides and food. And then we break those even further down into, you know, tick, do we do ticket booth? How we get in the tickets, physical ticket, digital ticket, order online or not. Do you see where this is going? I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but programmers will break projects down into, into smaller and smaller parts. Programmers also know how to solve problems at various levels. So for example, a web developer can solve a problem thinking specifically on how it would be written in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. So there's that importance of syntax, right? That's their stack. It's vanilla, HTML, CSS, JS, and they, they're given a problem like, hey, code this up, and they're thinking immediately in that stack. Or they can solve the problem at a higher level. 
So they're thinking, oh, you know what? I need this. I need to like detect a hover. I need to detect this. I need to detect the screen size. But this can be done in a number of languages. And so they're thinking uh, how to solve the problem in pieces, in those smaller parts, at a higher level. And that allows those higher level ideas or concepts to be put into any applicable technology, right? Because you can have a very similar conditional statement, syntax notwithstanding, you can have very similar conditional statements in C++, in Java, in whatever. Conditional statements are all over the place. So the importance here is that you know, I need a conditional statement here. I need to loop through this here, you know? And then some other concepts like, I need to bubble sort this. I need to do this and that, right? So this is where... This is where you start getting this, this or sort of melding where people that don't know their stack are going to think commonly in their stack, but you can still solve the same problem without a stack in front of you. You can still solve the problem and then be like, I need a conditional statement. And then you can Google that. Hey, I'm going to do this in JavaScript. Okay. How do I, how do I do this conditional statement in JavaScript? I use a conditional statement a lot because that's how I was taught. Like to be clear, there's lots of more other things you could do for loops and declare variables and certain types and stuff like that. Like there's not just a conditional statement, but conditional statement is how I was taught programming concepts in high school. So this kind of, I use that a lot still. Um, I think it's like the most powerful programming concept in general, just being able to do something if something exists or if it doesn't exist is, you know, a fundamental programming concept. Uh, Whereas like a loop is good, but you could still, you know, write out something a million times. (laughs) You don't necessarily need it. That's exactly it too, is it's, it's very much like, it's really cool to be like, if someone's like, okay, make a, you know, make a light turn on or whatever, or like change the background of the screen. So you just like go into the CSS and and do it. But then to go into JavaScript and be like, okay, make it so that when it's, when it's the evening, make it change color. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like you're telling the computer, like, holy crap, like this is, it's almost like I made a little, a little piece of smart technology. It's very liberating. So that's kind of what a conditional statement kind of unlocks, or at least it does for me. Um, the third point here of how to think of like a programmer. Progr- programmers can modularize code. This is getting a little bit more specific and maybe even a little bit more advanced than, a, than exactly a beginner. But in general, programmers can modularize code, which is to make their code snippets usable in multiple instances without having to code up a new version of something. So for example, an image lightbox, you're not going to rewrite and recode up an image lightbox. You might make... An image lightbox that's in your toolkit, and it's written for the vanilla stack, HTML, CSS, JS. And then you're going to constantly use that code that you wrote up on all of your projects moving forward until the language moves on or what have you. But you're going to constantly use that concept. You're not going to hard code everything and have your, all your variable names and everything be super specific to the one project. And then the next project, you're going to write up a very similar light box and hard code that no, you're just going to have some sort of function or a collection of functions that are very generic, like image, big image, full size image, whatever. And then you're going to have stuff pass it to each to one another type of thing. And last here, because I know that people always, you know, freak out about this is math is helpful. You know, it is important. No, no doubt, but it isn't necessarily needed for some roles or at least isn't needed too much. So, for example, a website user interface doesn't usually require much math. Some percentages in there. You might need to do some calcs or whatever in there with some CSS, but it rarely needs complex math. We've, we've come to a point where so much stuff is on computers that certainly there are tons of math roles, 
I'm sure in algorithms, uh, in especially AI and stuff like that. And there are certainly some decisions that would be nice. Like uh, we made an economy based little video game, a little clicker game, and we had to make an algorithm up uh, to determine how long it would take the average person to complete the game because we didn't want the game to be too long and not too short. So there's math totally involved in that. Absolutely. But since that day, I haven't really done much math other than percentages or screen widths or this or that. And so it doesn't like math is important, but like, don't freak out about it. And even in a boot camp, it's like, is a boot camp going to teach you a heck of a lot about math? Not really, because there's so many concepts in math that there's just not enough time. So maybe here and there they will be like, hey, this is com- this is a common thing they need to use. So use this, this formula or what have you. But in general, you know, don't freak out about math too much. So that kind of concludes my sort of like lecture lecture part, I guess, of this podcast. And so I, I want to go into the examples. We have two examples. The first one we've prepped for. We have the show notes. The second one we have it. So the first one here is it's me and I like my nav bars. It's a nav bar plus <laughs> hover, of course. So the problem is the problem that we need to solve right here is that we want to make a nav bar with several links listed horizontally on the screen. And one of the links has a sublist of links that show up vertically when the mouse hovers over it. So we have a breakdown of how we would solve this. And I have mine and Mike has his. So I'll go, with the, go through mine first and then Michael, Michael tackle this one. So the first one here is, again, my breakdown is absolutely first thing comes to mind when I'm given this problem is that each link is an element and I need to have them horizontally aligned. So I'll, I'll need a wrapper around them, a wrapper div around them so that Flexbox can horizontally align them. That's how I would do it. First thing comes to mind. Second thing is each of these links will have two classes. The first one is for styling, even though it's not specifically in the problem, this is so common. The first one is for styling, just regular styling. Like we're going to have them underlined. We're going to have them be red or blue, or it doesn't matter. We're going to have one for styling. And the second one is going to be for an active styling. So that is that if your nav bar has a, like, let's say one of the links is about like the about page and you're on the about page, that about link is going to be differently colored or maybe it's gonna be underlined or something. And so I'm going to have that ready. This is the first thing I think of. And the reason why I want to really highlight this is because I've been doing websites like this and nav bars like this for so long that I'm really thinking in my stack, like I'm thinking, okay, you know, I need this, my, my HTML needs to be laid out like this. My CSS needs to be laid out like this. My, uh, JS, if I need it, needs to be laid out like this or needs to be written like this. And I'm thinking of it in that way because I'm just like in this stack. But you could solve a very similar problem just with concepts like we need to have some sort of alignment tech, like align this thing. Then we need to have some sort of like you can talk in very general terms as well to apply this to other um, situations as well. But obviously, this is a web dev podcast, so we're focusing on web dev stuff. Uh, my My second or my third note here is that I'd also set up an ID. So only one of these links, okay, only one of these links needs to have a hover effect applied to it. So I'm going to have an ID that's called like, I don't know, hover on me or whatever it is. Um, hover on me sounds really, really appropriate for a, a uh, <laughs> for a web dev podcast, but like, like hover or whatever, whatever it is. And then because it's the only one, now I have something to hook onto. So now in my CSS, I'm going to have something happen on hover on that ID specifically, but not happen on any of the other classes that applies to these links. 
And then I also have another thing. So similarly with the horizontal links, I need to have another wrapper that wraps up all the sublinks that that would normally appear on hover. And that's so that I can flexbox them to appear vertically. And I may even want an additional wrapper around that link that is hoverable. The reason why I would do that is because I would like to position, even though it's invisible sometimes, I'd like to position this vertical this vertical sublist div. I'd like to position that in relation, in relation to the wrapper around the specific link. So hopefully that's, I know it's, it's weird to say just saying it rather than like showing it somehow visually, but hopefully that makes sense. And so then after that, I'm off to the races. You know, I set all this up in my HTML. I set all this up in my, in my CSS. Uh, I make, I can probably do this completely in HTML and just CSS. But if I really want some like really specific controls, uh, I might use a little bit of JS to make it appear or disappear. But for the most part, it's, this is a mostly to me anyway, a mostly HTML CSS deal. What's your, what's your take on this, Mike? Yeah, I think that was a really good uh, step-by-step analysis of that. Uh, mine's a little bit different, obviously, which is, I think, the point of this whole thing is every, every developer, every programmer will think a little bit differently about the same problem. Uh, so for me, I'm whenever I hear a problem with some sort of a UI, I think I need to see a visual representation. It doesn't have to be like a high fidelity, but some, a, lot of, a lot of the times I will go a little bit higher, not just wireframes. But let's say I'd build something, a visual representation of it using Figma or something like that, right? That's the first thing I would do. I would get the navbar built out. Maybe I'd get an approval or something like that on it. The next thing is I always start with HTML structure. So I'd have a nav di- a nav um, element, HTML element, uh, and then it would be using Flexbox row. And in that row, there would be a bunch of div containers, each div container representing one link. And each one of those divs would have a a tag in it, right? And not only would it have an a tag, but since we need some sublists, the div would also have a initially hidden UL, un, like unordered list tag as well. And that's where the LIs, obviously, the different uh, list items for that hover over menu will go. So they'll be associated with the individual nav elements, in terms of HTML structure, they will also be probably, um, they also be probably flexbox. Obviously, again, the initial UL will be uh, display none. I would then be using, after I set up the HTML, I would then be using Tailwind to prototype quickly. So it, it, it don't really care about how many classes are there, but it's going to be, you know, a bunch of flexbox stuff that I'm going to be putting in there. There's going to be some, you know, obviously the UL inside the div on, on the individual nav will be a column, flexbox column. Uh, the actual a tag itself, you know, would have some underlying stuff. Like I would have some design stuff there. That's not really part of this problem, but regardless, that's probably what I would do. I would make sure there's spacing. I would make sure there's padding. I would make sure everything looks decent. Uh, and then I would add the final element to this, which is the hover class, which would essentially activate a active class. Uh, so when when something hovers, I, there would be an active class that happens, and that active class would then have some CSS associated with it that would allow the UL to become uh, not display none, but display flex, and it would automatically show up. Now, 
that's the very rudimentary way of doing it. And it would just be kind of a pop in. I would probably add some animations to this as well. So I would make it so that there's some sort of a transition that happens when it goes from, uh, you know, display none to display flex, uh, whether it be scroll down, like slide down, whether it be a flip or whether it be whatever, I would add some sort of animation to it. Um, it would be a quick one. And then on each one of those list items inside that drop down menu, uh, I would probably add a underline hover as well, right? So that uh, people would know that they can click those links. That's the very quick way of going through it. And I could have, you know, it could have be a little bit off, but how that would work too, like let's say I'm wrong in some of this assumption, I would tackle that as I go. And I'm okay with being wrong in my breakdowns, if that if that makes sense. I'm not going for a perfect solution in my head ever. Because I know that some of this stuff is not going to work out the exact way that I think it is. And as, as it doesn't work out, I will go into Google. I will go into my text editor. Like I will, I will just try different things to make it do exactly what I want it to do. So that's another kind of little suggestion and a way to think like a programmer is not to go for perfection on the first try is to go for completion to a certain degree. Like obviously clean code, all that. But as much as you can, go for completion and then with the idea that you're going to go in there and debug, refactor and all that as you're going. I like that we did this this way because, you know, it's like you you definitely talked more about the specific elements, whereas I talk more abstract almost where I'm just like Flexbox is very specific, but I'm just sort of like, oh, I'll use hover to show it, you know, and I'm not like specifically going into stuff like this. So it's like, it's, it's interesting to see how both of us, even though this is like a very simple, very common problem to have on a, on a site that you need to execute. It's really interesting. It's really interesting to see how, even though we've worked together for so long, how differently we think about the same thing. And I, and I, I want this, like I, I, the reason why I like this so much is because I want this to be like a bit of a template or a boilerplate or whatever you'd call it for the listener right now in that. You're, you might think the same as Mike, you might think the same as me, but you might just be like, I'm not thinking of it like this. And your solution might work. It might totally work. The whole point is, is that we got to the solution. That's it. Like a prospective client, nine out of 10 times isn't going to be like, hey, did you use a conditional statement there? Hey, did you use a do loop? Like no one's going to care, you know? So just a, just some food for thought. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Uh, the second example Mike made. Um, so, do you, want, do you want me to go first on this one, or do yeah, you want? Yeah, yeah, that sounds okay. good. Yeah, I'll, then yeah. I'll cheat. <laughs> yeah, cheat, cheat a little bit off that. That makes sense. Uh, okay, so example two, and again, Matt, like Matt said, we we didn't prep for this one. It's kind of just at the top of our heads or top of my head, I should say. So uh, we'll see how this goes. Uh, example two is get a list of Pokemon from the Pokemon API. There's a public API for Pokemon and display it in a grid on an, on like a web page, right? So initially you think like, okay, that's easy. There's a, there's an open, uh, there's an open API. But again, what I would start with initially is let's do a Figma quick, a quick Figma with a grid layout of how the Pokemon would look, what information the Pokemon needs to be displayed. Like, are we just displaying the image? Are we displaying the image and the, uh, the name of the Pokemon or explain the type, like all this stuff I would work out in the prototype in the uh, Figma. And it, depending on if I'm doing this for a client or not, there would be a lot of questions I would ask if this is the statement, the problem statement that they gave me. That's another really key thing to understand when thinking like a programmer, quote unquote, is a problem statement is just a start 
you have to figure out the questions to ask. And that's a really key skill to have. And it's one you have to hone over multiple tries because the less questions you ask or the the more you think that the problem statement is clear, the more likely you, it is that you're going to have to go back and redo things. Because like I said, just, just off the top here, it's like, oh, this seems simple. But what do these Pokemon need to show? Like, what's a, what's a Pokemon? Like, is, is it an ant? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is it, is it, does it only need to show the, the pictures? Does it, but, or do we need to actually show all the information about each Pokemon? This is all really key information to know at this stage in the game. So I would hash that all out at this point before writing any code. So let's say that we do need to show the name and the type of the Pokemon. That's it. Right. And the image. And so that's good. Next thing I would do is I would probably use my trusty Svelte uh, front-end framework. I would create a new Svelte project. And inside there, I would set up a, um, a basic scaffold with a Pokemon, with Pokemon. So I wouldn't do any sort of API calls yet. I would set up the HTML structure just like I was talking about. I'd like to do HTML first. I would set up a basic uh, flex box, you know, with, um, with flex row. And I would do... Uh, what what is that uh, property? See, I can't. Re- I, I don't memorize the syntax. Oh, the flex I know, direction. I flex, there's flex direction, but there's also like how many how many flex boxes there can be in one row. Item count. Item count. Whatever it is. So I would make sure that there's only like five in one row, and then I would probably get it down to like two or one, depending on the mobile size. So I would do all these things without touching the API. What I would use is dummy data, quote unquote. I would either create a little JSON file that would store the URL of the image, the name of the Pokemon, and the type of the Pokemon in an array of um, of objects, essentially. And I would just use that to kind of populate my grid. Or I would even just copy-paste a basic block, like HTML block that I would make that would contain the image tag, like the image tag, the, uh, the name, and the type. And I would go in and I would lay it out just like I have in my Figma, making sure that they all look okay. Um, and then once I have that done, I would then go in and start looking at integrating the API side of things, right? Mm-hmm. The API will have documentation. I'll go in and look at the documentation. I will use, for this small project, depending on the scale, I'm probably not going to use something like SvelteKit because SvelteKit is more designed for multi-page applications and, you know, if you need like a off endpoint and stuff like that. Svelte would probably work just fine. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can listen to the episode before this where I dive deep into SvelteKit and Next and Nuxt and why you would use something like that. Um, but for this is a single page app. It's all good. We'll just use the basic Svelte. We don't need any routing. I would literally just pull in the data inside of my grid uh, or inside of my um, Pokemon grid component. So there would be a Pokemon grid component that shows all the Pokemon. I would pull in the data using something like Fetch. Fetch is built into the browser API, allows you to um, interact with APIs and third party, third parties. Uh, you know, I would use a, a regular Fetch function. It would then return a series of Pokemon again. Something that we should have actually clarified uh, before is how many Pokemon do we want to show? Do we want to show the first 150? If we want to do any sort of lazy loading, so like if we want to show 150 all right at once, or do we want to do, you know, pagination style uh, 20 at once, and then as, as people scroll down, 20 more, 20 more, 20 more. Let's say we want to show all 150 at once. Who cares? This is a small little project. Uh, so I would set the parameters in the API endpoint to allow the response to be all 150 Pokemon. That's all doable. 
And I would then use fetch, get all that stuff, store it in a variable, a reactive variable in Svelte would allow me to then literally use that as an array inside of the templates. I would use a for each uh, statement inside the templates, so inside the HTML, to essentially build the same cards that I already had, that I had copy-pasted multiple times, in a for loop, so it, you would only have to declare, you don't have to declare it once, and inside that card, you would then pass in information like the name that you get back from the response, you would pass in the image URL that you would get back, and then the type that you would get back. And that would be your kind of dynamic variables inside of your for, of your for loop in your templating. And you would just kind of loop over, like it would just automatically loop over all that, display all the ones that are listed inside of that 150 element array. And it should theoretically, fingers crossed again, like knowing that there's going to be problems, uh, but it should show all the Pokemon just like you wanted. You just scroll down all the way to make sure that you can see them all. And that would be it for me. Like, honestly, that's the base that's the basic level of the project doesn't require any sort of caching doesn't require any sort of authentication obviously with scale and stuff like that you'd be worried worrying about where the data is stored maybe you wouldn't want to use an open api you would cache that api whatever i don't want to get too far into thinking about architecting something like this it's not the same but literally in my brain that's where i go whenever i think of a project i just start thinking like, okay what's the scale of it if it's a really small scale just do it quickly like this this is more of a you know this is more something that I would do for a practice project or a course project or something like that. For anything else, it would be a little bit of a different situation. This is super interesting because I don't really use APIs too often. And so my mind immediately goes to, okay, what's the thing you have the least amount of practice with? And that is getting the API to work. Mm -hmm. So I don't give a crap about any of the, like in my head anyway, it's like, I don't give a crap about how it's laid out. I don't, I don't care about any of that. The very first thing I'm going to go in and tackle is that I'm going to try to tackle this API connection. So I'm going to refer to more than likely the documentation that the API provides, choose what method I want to get. I want to use to get the information. And then once that's established, connect to it and then test it. And what I'll normally do is I'll test a bunch of stuff. So I'll determine, say, roughly what I want to have in my layout, like the name, the image, maybe some properties, whatever. But generally, an API will provide you with a lot more than what you actually need. And so I'll figure out what I want, and then I'll just get it to work straight up. I'll just do like a generic call, get it to work. Then I'll slowly start to apply those filters like, hey, just give me the first 150 Pokemon. Okay. Hey, okay, let's get them in uh, alphabetical order. Uh, let's get them without their uh, region. Let's get them without their generation number. Let's get them without what games they appeared in. You know, let's get them with, you know, and I'll slowly make this API work because again, I have the least amount of experience with this. And what I'm trying to do here is make it so that I am creating like a connection system, if you will. So like a function or a collection of functions that connects to this API, filters it down for me, and then gives me some sort of endpoint in my own code, like a like a local endpoint, if you will, so that I can just go in now and do what I do, you know, a lot, which is just make a layout. So I'll just go in and I'll just make a big old flexbox layout, and then I'll display all these all these Pokemon names, their image, and any other things that I filtered into my filter, and I will slowly make this thing work. Now, 
my description is obviously a lot less, a lot more vague than Mike's. It has a lot less, it has a lot less detail. And that's because the API part is really big. And I think this highlights something interesting is that I understand that I'm connecting to some sort of remote API and I'm pulling down this information. And I know that I, I'm not in practice to do that. And so the concept that I'm that I'm ensuring I get here is that I know I need to connect to this thing and I know I need to have the information come in and then I know I need to make it such that, uh, you know, I'm filtering down these properties. And even though this isn't a specific way to say a specific programming concept or something, I understand the sort of like the operations that need to happen for this problem to be solved. And then I'm, I'm focusing on the part that I'm going to struggle with. Um, and I'm also talking about it at a really high level. Like I'm not going in and saying, I'm going to use PHP to do this, or I'm going to use node to do this, or I'm going to use, you know, whatever technologies to do this. I'm literally saying I need to connect based upon their documentation. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to filter based on how their documentation says to do it. And I'm going to then tailor the information that I'm getting from the Pokemon API. I'm going to tailor that information such that I can more easily place it into a UI that I'm familiar with. So I'm being very sort of general and high level. And I think this points out that thing where it's, it's, I'm almost being at the, the programming concepts level. Again, I'm not like teaching, I'm not like talking about programming theory where I'm like, I need a conditional statement here, this and that. But the point is, is that I can break it down into parts that the, that I could then later code up and have the computer execute to solve the problem. Um, Cause everything that I don't know, and there's a lot, is in the documentation, in the API's documentation. You know, if I need to refer to anything about CSS or HTML, I can do that. If I need to do anything, like Mike said, like Mike, Mike considered pagination and all that. I didn't even consider that. I didn't even consider the rows or anything. I'm solely into the API game because it's my least familiar thing. And so, or at least, least familiar uh, concept. And so I'm like, hey, let's get the hard part done, get it all set up, and then once all this is set up and convenient for me, now I can do the part that I'm used to. And so it's like good practice in, in both. It's good practice in what I'm familiar with and what I'm unfamiliar with as well. And then if the client or if or maybe it's me decides, whoa, we can't have 30 Pokemon in a row, then I'll slowly but surely change the design of that. I'll slowly shave this away and like, like you know, shave things off. Like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe pagination looks okay. Do some pagination. Nah, I don't like that load. Like, you know, maybe we'll have like a, like almost like a, like a scrolling effect where it loads nine items. You scroll down a little bit, loads another nine items, you know, kind of like a lazy load ish type of thing. Um, you know, do I, how do I want the grid to look? Do I want them all to be really up against each other? Do I want there to be like a gap? Do I want the, the Pokemon information to appear like they're in a Pokemon card, those type of things. I mean, a lot of this stuff is like, I'll just sort of do it like a really high level and that's how I would solve the problem. And then I can sort of do the finesses and the details later. Now, the benefit of this, though, and I, as a small sort of an aside to the whole episode, is that if you were to design this, so if you had a designer or you did it yourself and you had a Figma or a wireframe or whatever, and you had this designed out, a lot of this stuff you don't even need to think of. And you could realistically just focus on, I'm going to use Flexbox to achieve what the layout looks like. And I'm going to make my API uh, information mechanic, the filtering, you know, the connecting, all that stuff. I'm going to make that mechanic. I'm going to then put it into a UI and the UI, I don't even need to think of because I've already have it designed or I have it laid out at the very least. And so it speaks to a bit of 
I guess, speaks to a bit of project management where you now no longer need to do that finessing or those details. But either way, the problem is ultimately solved. I've, I've gone to a Pokemon API, I've pulled down the information and I've, and I've done it. Um, so that's just how both of us think. I mean, I'm sure that as I learn more and as I like, maybe if I like did a big project where APIs were huge and, 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 and I did it more recently than I for probably sure would be talking more specifically. Like, like if we had a WordPress problem in here, we've been working a lot with WordPress lately. If we had a WordPress problem in here, I've been doing a lot of the sort of DevOps part of the WordPress. And then we have a contractor doing more of the WordPress side of things. Um, he like the contractor would talk all about the different things that he's done in WordPress. And I would talk all about those details that I did for the DevOps. I moved the files here. I did this. I backed this up. I moved this here. I made it convenient for this. I, I did this and here's a little trick to do this. And here's a little trick to do that. And so as you become more familiar, like, again, you're starting to get established in your stack. You're starting to get established with your technology and you're starting to, you know, think in your technology. But again, it doesn't, it doesn't out you completely if you understand the concepts and generally understand how to solve a programmatic problem, specifically like a computer programming problem, then you're able to at least at a high level outline it and know where to look. Oh, like, do I need a conditional statement here? Or like, hey, I need to connect to an API. Like, I need to Google that. Whereas some people would be like, what's an API? You know, it, it just, you're able to Google each section. So as long as you're able to sort of lay out the problem, break it down into pieces and then smaller pieces under those, um, you can absolutely tackle different programming problems. Uh, but I think that really concludes the episode. I don't know if you wanted to include anything else, Mike. I thought this episode was going to be super long, and I, I don't think it needs to be. Um, what do you think? No, definitely not. And I think I think what you nailed right on top there is uh, focusing on the thing you don't know, right? And a lot of the times I will 100% do that. Uh, so anytime that a client would come up to him and be like, hey, can you make this, you know, this random object spin at 360 degrees and then fly off the screen and then, you know, have bring in the entire encyclopedia into the website, whatever. I'm just talking <laughs> bullshit. But regardless, whenever a client comes to me and gives me some stuff that I've never done before, I don't say no, it can't be done. I don't say, hey, like whatever. I say, hey, I'll look into it. And usually I try to tackle that problem first, obviously. Sometimes, you know, a project will be lengthier project, like a bigger scope where there's a bunch of stuff that needs to be done. Some of it being stuff that you've already done many times and some of it being stuff that you've never done. A lot of like what I recently did with uh, Solarians with their GIF creation tool. Uh, I've never, you know, worked with Canvas and GIFs. So I knew like how to pull stuff in from wallets. I knew how to display stuff on a Canvas. I knew how to manipulate a HTML Canvas with JavaScript, but I didn't know how to bring in GIFs into a Canvas. So that was the part I started with first, just to make sure that, you know, a week in, two weeks in, I know that the hardest part, the part that I don't know can be done. And I'll report back saying, hey, now I know the time frame of this and stuff like that. Like a lot of the times I won't even say like an estimated time until I figure out the stuff that I don't know. And, and I'll tell them that up front. I'll be like, hey, it's going to probably take me a couple of weeks to get the estimated time for you because I need to figure out, make sure that the stuff that I don't know is completely doable. Right. So. That's a really good point that you brought up, Matt. I think it's a really key thing for people to realize is that, again, a lot of projects that you take on, even at a job, is going to be not familiar territory, especially when you're starting out as a junior developer. All the stuff you're going to be doing is going to be new. So it's important to know that, be okay with it, embrace it, and just tackle one, tackle one problem at a time, 
again, some people will like to tackle the easy problems first to get some momentum. That's fine. But for myself and looks like Matt as well, we like to tackle the more challenging problems so that they're not at the back of our heads and weighing us down as we kind of move forward and, and tackle the smaller, smaller, easier stuff later. A lot of it's also like talking about the unknown as well, is that maybe I can't connect to this API or I can't do that thing in Canvas that they're asking. And so I need to completely change the strategy. If that's the case, then it might even flip the stuff that I do know or the stuff that I think I know on its head. I might, I might make a whole HTML CSS layout only to find out that I can't even do it on a web page. I got to do it in Autodesk and then embed an auto, you know what I mean? Like it's, it might flip everything on its head. So kind of revealing the unknown, at least in my opinion, is the best strategy. I understand people do things differently and that's fine, but like, it's just, it's just allowing you to see the bigger picture without any sort of blind spots where you're not like, well, I don't really know how that works. And there's always going to be some areas that you're not going to understand fully. But when it's something big, like I need a Pokedex here that pulls from an API and I don't know how the API works. It's like, fair enough. But if you're like, I don't know what font to use, that's not a huge problem. You know what I mean? It's just like, okay, like whatever we can figure out the fonts, but like, if we can't get the information into this, into this dang thing, you know, what are we doing? Um, another thing too, I want to mention actually, just as a kind of a footnote, is that because there's so many concepts and languages and different things to go through and yada, 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 a lot of this stuff, even if you're just a vanilla programmer where you're doing HTML, CSS, JS, all vanilla, no frameworks, no none of this, there's so many things that you can do with just the vanilla framework or the just the vanilla stack that you might forget. You might not use Canvas for like a year and a half. You might be doing all kinds of other things and all of a sudden you use Canvas again and you might not remember how to do that. All that syntax and all that learning that you did, you know, you, you might remember some of it, but you're going to be very rusty or you may not remember anything at all. And that's where that sort of concept comes in where you're like, I understand that like I need to do this pretty advanced visual thing. I need to use canvas. That's the, that's the, the important thing is that you have a jump off point. Now you can go in and make the encyclopedia fly in or whatever Mike said in the canvas by going through the canvas documentation step-by-step step, by you taking that task, breaking it down to small steps, and then using the documentation, using guides, using YouTube videos as your, as you like literally as your guide through solving each one of these small pieces to then ultimately solve the problem. That's ultimately what is the real value here. If you did not know that you needed canvas, if you did not know any of that, then it starts getting like, then it's another Google, right? Like you can see how this can become a runaway. Like how do I do things advanced in, in like advanced visually online? You might find some random program that embeds things. So you might be like, Oh, maybe I need to use some like this library or this whole program or use like the Autodesk embeddable thing, right? Like you might stumble down there if you really don't know. Whereas, you know, you're really like close to the solution. If you're like canvas is the solution. I know that I just don't quite remember how to make this spin in here. That's a much closer to the end goal, Google, Google search, if you will, than if you were like, how do I display visually complex things online? It's like, what type of search is that? Right? Like you're going to, you're going to have to really whittle that down, 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 down. So, um, I hope this episode was valuable. Uh, I hope that it's, you know, wasn't confusing. I know that some of this stuff might be better, uh, sort of said written or sort of said in a video or something like that. But I think it's important, you know, especially for beginners or people that are, let's say they've been in Ruby on Rails their whole career and then they're going to something else that, you know, you're not just like, you're not just 
like you can't remember everything. You know, you're not going to remember everything. You're not going to know everything. But if you understand the concepts, if you understand, you know, generally how computers work and how program, how thinking like a programmer works, and even to tr- to teach yourself, to train yourself, to think to think like a programmer, to think like a coder, to think like a problem solver, really, to think like a problem solver, then you're able to switch from that career of Ruby on Rails to vanilla or to Reactor to wherever, to Svelte or whatever the, wherever your journey takes you, you'll be able to break things down and use these concepts to drive your Google searches, to drive your research, to drive your learning. And the new syntax is then the only step left. And we've all dealt with syntax, so it's not that bad. Yep. But, uh, if you like this episode or like episodes like this, and you want to support the show. You can go check us out on that Patreon. That is patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, which I forgot to pull my thing up. So Mike, can you like do a song and dance to keep, to keep the people happy? So we I don't can't have a, sing, but I can give my ending remarks very slowly. I think we talked about, the (laughs) how to think like a programmer but my brain is mush right now so i don't know if it was completely accurate but just know that it's important to kind of be okay with not knowing that's another like just a huge part of being a programmer is like there is never going to be a project where you're like i know exactly how to do this start to finish even if you feel that way something's going to come up and it's okay be okay with the troubleshooting. Be okay with embracing, uh, looking stuff up. Be okay with not memorizing. Matt said it a million times, but memorization is not something you need in programming. It will happen. If you use an if statement a million times, you will memorize an if statement. Let that happen. But in other, in other ways, just know that the information is out there and rely on that, on you finding information and you being good at finding it. And a good way to cap off and cover up my negligence and uh thanks to our three dollar tier patrons <laughs> ryan gatchel from blue black digital on blueblackdigital.com chris and self-made web designer on self-made web designer.com tim from the web hacker on the web hacker.com dl ford from dl ford.io hash nine block media nine block media.com jason from geek life radio via geekliferadio.com michael curie from mc web studio via mcwebstudio.ca magnus from yesweb via yesweb.se and jeff from twitter via at the jeff McHale. feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.